This presentation is from UX Australia 2020, day three. Our next presenter today, Nancy, joins us from the US. One of the things that we've uh, been looking at during the course of this conference and we'll continue to uh, come back to are various issues arriving out of the need to uh, speak to work with a diverse group of people to ensure that our design work is done in a way that is with the people who will be using them um, rather than designing at people or designing to people. Um, Nancy's going to uh, talk us through how we use uh, global research um, to navigate across cultural boundaries. Hello, Nancy. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. If you are ready, I will hand over to you and get you started. All right. Thank you. Go ahead and share it and hand it over. <laughs> yep. Uh, just uh, so share your screen and there we go. Hey, everybody. I am so excited to be speaking to you from uh, interesting California. That is where I'm located. <laughs> and I'm interested to be talking to you guys about the work that I've done across the globe when it comes to understanding, understanding, excuse me, how UX is designed across cultural boundaries. And so let's go right into it. Why am I even talking about this? So, you know, I am uh, from the world of science. I have an engineering background, research background, design background, was working on my master's and also working on my PhD, human computer interaction, human factors engineer, computer science, always curious about so many things. But one of the things that's really difficult for me living in the United States is that I come from Haiti, from a small island uh, in the Caribbean and watching how my family, who still lives in Haiti now, navigates in their own world and navigates in the United States, and then seeing how folks in America navigate in Haiti and folks in Haiti navigate in America has been really a premise to my experience with design. And so let me take you a little bit deeper into my household. I'm not from Port-au-Prince, which seems to be the place that a lot of people know about in Haiti. I'm from a place called Okai which is the south side of Haiti. It's an agriculture space. So everybody is basically a farmer. My parents are farmers. And this is the home for generations that my family grew up in. And it's amazingly remarkable when I share this with folks in America because they look at this and they say, oh my God, how have you suffered? Nancy, the struggle is so real. And it's, it's so interesting to me because I wonder what it is that they're seeing that I'm not seeing. And so with further questions, they say, you know, that roof is decrepit, right? You guys have to fix that up. And where are the windows? You know, they're on the side. The kitchen actually is on the outside. That chicken must be the only meal you have for years, you know? But for some reason, when I give folks additional context about this home that looks like what the way they describe it as a hut, never thought about it as a hut because it's a home to me, is that that roof that's on there has made it through hurricanes, has made it through earthquakes. This thing keeps the inside of your home cooler than an air conditioning system. So to me, it's highly functional. When they talk about like, you know, there's no electricity in this community, I wonder if they think people are just not operating or living. Like, what do you do if there's no internet or electricity? These folks are doing fine. Want to know why? Probably because behind that wall over there on the left side of my screen, 
is a beach. That is right. My families are our members, our family, excuse me, our farmers on the coast of a beach. Now, when I give people that additional information, for some reason, people look at this home and decide that this is a beach cabana. What happened? You know, the same experience when I go home in America and I invite my family members, like my grandmother came one day and she asked me about the green everywhere in, in America, these lawns. And she asked me, why, why are they everywhere? And I said to her, well, you know, it's a beauty thing. You know, it's, and she's like, what do they do with them? And I'm like, they cut it and look at it, and sit on it. And she said, wait, let me understand. They can get the grass this green, but they can't grow vegetables. Very interesting, these different perspectives coming from different worlds, but what do we do with them? You know, I went on into higher education and I learned a bunch of different things about this idea of culture, design, engineering, and understanding how we build for the world. And as I went on to work at a number of major corporations, I noticed that the teams got smaller, the budgets got smaller, and the insights were very local. Here I am working at international companies, designing products, but doing all my research studies in Silicon Valley. What implications does that mean for the rest of the world when you're building for the world? What I started noticing is that often the design path was going from defining to releasing in the world. I watched multiple projects get shelved. What is it, 12 years ago, I was working on pandemic software and hardware that ended up being shelved because we couldn't understand the community in this particular case, the baby boomers of America, the elders that were going to be ending up in these hospitals. 12 years ago, we knew this was gonna be a problem. We knew this, but because we could not understand our users and we went from defining it for them because we knew they needed the solution and releasing it out to the world, the project ended up not working and it ended up being shelved. I worked on tons of products that got shelled from every major company that you saw on that last list. And what I realized very quickly is that the reason some of these projects get shelved is because there's a level of privilege that, privilege that informs design. And being in this westernized society, being in America, being where I am in Silicon Valley, I start to see what happens when you build from a privileged circumstance and spread it out to the world. And I saw what disasters occurred and I saw what wins occurred and why those wins occurred. And I hope to share that with you today as we go through some examples. And so the first thing we talk about a lot, it's become a buzzword, is that we need to increase uh, empathy, right? We need to understand our users. If we just understood our users, some of these issues would not happen. But here's the thing about empathy. Does it go far enough? What is empathy in the first place? Sure, it is understanding the perspectives of other views, other points of views, but let's try to take that into some action. I'm gonna give you guys an example to play along with me. When we're leading with empathy, I know you guys are leading with your heart, you really care. So if I told you that I am pregnant and I'm having a baby boy and all of you, I've decided all of you are going to be the godparent to my baby. And all I want you to do is to design a mobile for my baby, the thing that rotates on top of the crib, you guys would probably put a lot of empathy into that. You'd say, you know what? Then you put some cars there, some airplanes, some trains, you know, you'd be really considerate of this experience for my child. So when they see all these amazing things, it would be amazing, right? However, why is it that we haven't taken into context that this child 
maybe seeing the bottoms of these toys, the wheels, so to speak, the bottom foots of the stuffed animals. If they're not big enough to stand up and play with these things, what experience are we really giving them? Are we giving the full context when we think about empathy? And if we are thinking about that, how do we make sure we include these other perspectives earlier on when we may not always be equipped to, to, have, to do so? That's where I decided to come up with this term called nobility complex. It's where I wanted people to understand that when you're in a position of privilege, sometimes you unintentionally create solutions without accounting for your own explicit and implicit bias. So to be clear, we're all biased. I'm biased myself. But when we don't account for it, when we're doing the work that we do, consequently, what ends up happening is we end up patting ourselves on the back. We end up designing solutions that make us feel good, but not necessarily is helpful for the world, right? And so, for example, when my family was caught in the Haitian earthquake in 2010, I was there a day before the earthquake, landed in America, and all my friends contacted me to try to help me. But what they did was they told me, listen, Nancy, I have all this clothes. Where can I send it? I'm going to figure it out. Just give me an address and I will get it to Haiti. Now, mind you, I'm busy worrying about my family who was missing at that time. Thank God they are here. But, you know, what I kept thinking to myself is, how are folks creating these solutions for sending clothes to Haiti during an earthquake when buildings are down, when there's a cholera outbreak? Do you really think the priority is sending clothes? Or really are you trying to soothe this pain that you may be experiencing and you want to help me in some way? This is when help becomes charity, but not necessarily help. It's really important that we take the time to ask the right questions ahead of time to make sure that we're not helping in a way that hurts. And so I wanted to be clear that it's really important uh, that we encourage people to be their most curious versions of themselves, right? But we also wanna encourage folks, hopefully by the end of this, to speak up when something isn't quite working. And hopefully, when you learn that something isn't quite working, you speak up soon enough so that we can make the hard choices to either prolong a project so we can take into some of these considerations or uh, to speak up in order to uh, pause a project in order for us to make sure that we have the project designed the right way up front. So we'll go into that a little bit more. Because what ends up happening is our designs end up informing others. So this is a father, he's changing his baby on the floor. And the reason he's changing his baby on the floor is because there are basically no baby changing stations in men's rooms in America. Now, does that mean men don't have their babies on their own and that they don't need baby changing stations? That's not necessarily true. But it's these kinds of concepts that we don't think about when we think about design in our limitations, that means that we are creating bias for others in the world. But when you start to include some voices that you may not consider, consider, for example, um, transgender individuals and create all gender bathrooms, now you've created opportunities, not just for those individuals, but also for men, for women, for others, because we're considering other contexts, we're considering other scenarios, we're considering other cultures in order to create a more inclusive world. And so my favorite example to talk about this is Tay the chatbot. 
Microsoft came out with this amazing chatbot that was supposed to be your new best invisible friend. And basically, she would speak with you. You would say hello. She could respond back to you. And the more you talk to her, the smarter she gets. Um, unfortunately, within about six to eight hours, Tay started communicating like this. Hitler was right. I hate the Jews. She started looking for women and attacking them online, attacking people by race, just finding all kinds of interesting insults. Where the hell did Tay learn all of this, right? Well, she learned it from us. She learned it from the interwebs. And it makes you wonder when Microsoft finally shut it down at 16 hours, how they didn't catch this in the first place. Why in the world did they release a technology that was running around rampant, but not actually, um, how could they not pick this up in their own testing that this could happen? Well, turns out a lot of the testing for Tay was done in China. So you can imagine because of the cultural differences there, when you test something in one place and introduce it into another world, it may operate differently. It's the same way that when you look up in a Google search, uh, doctors versus nurses, right? You might see in the images, most of the doctors are male, and you might see in the images for nurses, most of them are women. Does that mean doctors can't be um, women and that nurses can't be male? That's not the case, but that's how the internet learns. The AI is learning from us that we are a biased society and it is separating us and it's our responsibility to give it the additional context, whether that is you're in the wrong place or hey, let's build a compiler conscious on top of this so that you understand racism and sexism and that is not good. But that's something that we'll get to one day. For now, what can we do today? Well, what we can do is stop designing for westernized stereotypes so that our products can be more scalable and global. So let me give you an example of some projects I worked on when I was at Uber. Now, Uber is a, a global company, as you guys know, all over the world. And my role as one of their global leads was to try to get insights from around the globe so that we could build products that were representative of the world. We started noticing that we were running into a lot of different issues in a lot of different countries with each design release. There was one point where we released a design where we lost 30% of our users in an entire country because of a design release because it was built in a silo and we didn't take into account some context. So here we are, this company, Uber, six continents. And at the time that I was there, 77 countries, over 600 cities. And we were building solutions for places like this. Tell me, how would you guys create a pickup estimated time of arrival for a place like this? Where do we even pick them up? Is this such a unique problem that we just got to stay away from it? We, we just can't solve this? But here we are in India, we have to solve for problems like this. But what's important about trying to solve for problems like this is that it, they actually, in fact, benefit us on the other end. And so what I mean is if you could design a solution for places like this, think about designing solutions for things like Coachella, for giant festivals around the world and creating pickups for that when there's different crowds all over the place. It's important that we have this inclusive perspective in designing with the world in mind so that we're not limiting ourselves. Otherwise, we end up losing out to our competitors, which I've seen time and time again. And so let's talk about the design process that we typically do here in the States, right? We identify the requirements. We create use cases based on those requirements. We build task flows and scenarios. 
we wireframe, we create lo-fi designs, we conduct research, we iterate on that feedback, and then we deliver the development to, of our work within sprints or whatever out to the world. We launch, essentially. So does this design process work globally? Well, for me, I realized I ran into some issues when I was doing this at Uber. I realized that we needed something more unique to capture some of these insights. And so to, I put together a team. I created something called the Global Scalable Research Platform, which we had a leader in Europe, and we built out teams in India and built out teams in LATAM. We specifically chose those locations, Latin America and India, because uh, we felt like they were centralized enough to reach to other folks and the opportunities we were getting there and the growth was massive. So it was really important as we were releasing designs, we weren't losing customers in these places, but actually trying to make sure that we could acknowledge whether we need to build separate teams there or if we could actually build and produce research or designs here in the United States that would work. So we hired teams in Mexico, Brazil, in India, in Europe. And eventually we ended up working with folks in Australia and other locations around the world. And we designed our process a little differently. And so the first thing I did when I, I joined the company is I wanted to know where is it systematically that decisions happen? Here in the States, a lot of time with our engineering departments who are the launchers, right? They are the gods here. Um, it is in our PRD process. That's the product requirements documents. That is the holy grail. If it's in there, then it will come to be. And so I wanted to be in there, right? I wanted to try to inform all our product teams and engineering teams that we needed to have a global checkpoint to make sure that earlier on we could get people to get some insights. It doesn't have to be all, just a little bit of something. And so how do I convince somebody or the team to give me something, right, out of nothing? What I requested to the team was that they give me an optional place in just two product teams. So, excuse me, Uber, we have rider teams, driver teams, we have Uber Eats, we have money teams, we have all these different teams. And I was able to convince the driver and the rider team to let me get into their PRD and put a little checkpoint that was just a submit form. Ask us anything was the question. If you have a project coming in and you just have some curiosity about how this might work in the other world, ask us your question. And if you want this to be tested, we can get you answers in as little as one week to two weeks of time, all by just simply asking a question. But of course, it's a little bit more complicated than that. We want you to be a part of our research. And so that's what we did. We started getting a bunch of questions. And some of the questions that we got, or honestly, most of the questions that we got were about validating ideas that people already have. Hey, I built this thing and I think it's going to work great in Brazil. Can you test this for me and tell me how Brazilians respond to it? Because I know that redesigning this driver process to help them uh, plan their days is going to be wonderful when we test it in Brazil. Now, a lot of that validation doesn't really sound like folks are really taking into consideration changing their mind if a different insight comes into play. But we'll get into that. For the most part, in order to proceed with us in this, uh, this global scalable research uh, platform, which I'm calling GSR, we asked them to ask a question, participate in a small debrief, and then we would incorporate that question into some of our interviews that we had already standing in these locations. So we had biweekly agile studies going on in these locations where they were just waiting on hand, these teams, 
for a research question that they were going to test, right? Sounds a little too good to be true, but that's what we did. We asked if you were an engineer or designer that you localized the task flows, right? So if we're going to design something, it can't show San Francisco if we're testing in Australia, right? It has to show Sydney, Australia on a map, little things like that. We told them that we would conduct the research that could be usability testing, card sorting, intercepts, interviews, and all we needed them to be is, well, all we needed them to really kind of do is show up for our findings. So the preliminary findings we were able to give them, this is the less than a week time, we were able to give them raw high level results in a week in less than that bit of time. So we had our teams come together, debrief quickly and give them raw results. Now those raw results aren't the official results. Those are just raw results. The following week, we got some time to fill out the, do the final report where we would uh, provide them with our suggestions. We would loop in the design teams. We would make a decision whether we needed to iterate and retest at that point, And then we would start the process over and over again. Now we received a ton of questions tons of questions. So we decided to create a prioritization protocol checklist in which you didn't just submit a question, right? You participated in a 15 minute debrief. This is where we could pick up if you were having to validate an idea or if we could turn that idea into a research question. Really difficult for folks to do, but we were able to take that with our team and change it into a research question. Now, what we learned with this 15 minutes of time was that the majority of questions, because we had these teams in these, a, lot of, a lot of these places, could be answered just partially because we had different contexts coming from teams that we hired locally in those places. So for example, if somebody came and said, hey, we think that cash won't work in India, so we think that we need to operate in XYZ form. The folks who were our India team could then say, well, here's some things that you didn't consider. The folks in Brazil could say, hey, that sounds cool, but did you know in Brazil that there are credit cards that are just for food only that, uh, that employers uh, have? So with these interesting little insights, we found that we were able to go back to the drawing board with a lot of these engineers and they were able to start making design changes right away in less than 15 minutes. We also wanted to know if their project questions were prioritized by the HQ and if there was any regional priority to it, right? So if you said that we want to test this in Colombia, did it make sense to test this in Colombia? Was it a priority for that space? Or was it better to test it in Brazil or Mexico? We ask that they make a commitment to impact for the product. What that means is that anything that comes out of this research, you're committed that taking these insights and making an impact with the product. So if it doesn't turn out the way you like it, you're committed to taking these insights and doing something different. We ask that they are ready. We can't just do your research project if you're not ready. We want those localized prototypes and we want our research plans to make sure that they are aligned with an actual research question and it has, um, all the other factors that might be incorporated with uh, readiness. And then we want to know if there was an opportunity to do strategic long-term relationships. This is where a lot of foundational research came out of. And lastly, we asked for feedback. It was really important as we were testing this global program that we got feedback from the folks, the engineering teams, design teams working with us so that we could make our program more robust and better so that everybody could benefit. Because remember, we're trying to change systems. We're trying to make this something that will live beyond us. And so we tested it out. I won't lie, our first examples were real softballs. People didn't quite trust us. So the first two questions we ended up getting were, should we localize our products to the local languages? For example, in India, when we were producing products in Bangalore, 
while you know the official language is Hindi everywhere, there's so many languages in India. So should we uh, translate these screens to Kannada, the local language there? And does that mean that we have to do that everywhere? So that was one of the questions. Another question is, how do people respond to illustrations versus photos? Should we be showing folks illustrations on how to do things, or should we use photos on how to do things? Somebody opening a door and entering a car, or should we have an image, an illustration, cartoon character of somebody going in and opening the door? We did expert reviews in these locations, so they came in and did the debriefs. We did usability testing and co-designing in some cases with this agile process, and we ended up learning and designing global guidelines that created systematic change. So these little questions, while they seem like they're softballs, ended up becoming really huge guidelines. For example, localizing languages ended up becoming something where we learned that in many countries, certain words have to remain in English. Words like swipe, when you translate, are actually more confusing to users. So that was a really interesting guideline that there are certain terms, even when you're localizing in certain places, that you might have to use the English term. When it came to illustrations versus photos, we learned some really, really cool things as well. We learned that illustrations, for example, are really good for uh, educating and training folks, whereas photos was better for showing people who they could be. So for example, we showed an image in India of a woman who looked very wealthy, according to some of these individuals, in a photo by a car, they said, wow, that is how I think that I will be if I work hard enough, I might be able to give my wife this opportunity. Now, we heard several answers like this. They didn't think that the woman, for example, was the actual driver of the car, which is another scenario that we got to work with. But they saw it as these images, these photos could be what I could become. And those were guidelines we ended up creating as well. And we continued testing as we reiterated in the program, we started doing parallel regional research, not just usability testing and card sorting. We did these intercepts in different locations. So here, intercepts are kind of like um, when you do a cafe study or a hallway usability study, or if you just sit in a coffee shop and ask people questions, right? It was really, really easy to do this in other countries because other countries tend to be high touch. And so they're very excited to talk to you. Whereas here in America, for example, places for support people sometimes more, more often go online than go someplace to get help. We even held design jams where we asked folks to co-design with us some of these solutions for things that were frustrating for them. We made sure that we kept our sample size to two plus country points. So if you were gonna test something in America, we want to make sure that you at least test it in America in another location. Well, two other locations that might be India and Brazil, that might be Brazil and Mexico, that might be Mexico and India, that might also be Africa because our teams can travel, right? We, con we conducted six one-on-one -on -one interviews and usability tests uh, in these locations when we were doing our studies. And we made sure that our product teams are HQ. We were trying to prioritize what was important uh, to our product team so that we knew that it was going to be something that would launch. Uh, some of the challenges was cross-regional analysis. Man, did we learn some things. So for example, that earlier example I talked about, drivers, uh, doing a, a, trying to make sure that drivers plan their day better. When we tested the design in America, in Brazil and Mexico, they laughed at us because they said, why would we want to know about peak hours and weather only? That, that's it? We know when there's traffic. There's always traffic, right? Whether we look up at the sky, clouds move, we know what's happening. Here we kind of are very on our devices, right? So we may not technically look at weather that way. 
But in both locations, they said, what we want to know is about events. Brazilians told us they wanted to know about events because they wanted to get closer to the events so they could get better clients, right? Makes sense. But then Mexico, they said they wanted to learn about the events to stay away from the events. They realized that dr they had grumpier customers, right? When, uh, because there was hold times, long lines. It took too long to get to places. They burnt a bunch of gas. They was just, it was just not worth it to them. So with these different insights, we didn't just build something different for Mexico and build something different for Brazil. We realized that there was a way to include this for everyone, to influence everyone. So we built something more robust, right? Another challenge was just building our relationships around the world. A, a lot of our teams in these other locations didn't know how to connect with the HQ as well. And it was challenging. And so I ended up becoming a bit of the liaison and building those relationships, but building or continued relationship so that folks knew after they did some studies, listen, I can just ping this person and ask them, hey, does this make sense to you? So they were still operating with other insights in mind. We had lots of leadership. We did lots of repeat engagements. We made systematic change. We started seeing things that ended up becoming foundational research. So for example, when we learned that the credit cards that we used was actually creating less opportunity in places like Brazil, Mexico, and India, um, for example, those three-digit pins or four-digit pins on the back of the card, those aren't necessarily true for credit cards in India and Brazil, right, or Mexico or many, many places. And so what ended up happening is that Uber became seen as a luxury service. It wasn't actually something that was beneficial to everyone. But when we took that into account and started doing foundational research based on some of this research, we ended up building a money team that then started creating opportunity to collect cash. And as a result of collecting cash, not only did we create more opportunity in rural areas and in suburban areas, but we also created more profit, which takes me to our ROI. During this program, the folks who decided to optionally go into this program, we were able to audit and see that we were spending more efficiently as a result of them testing through this and that we were able to increase our own revenue potential by understanding the insights. So we could literally show them right away through 20 projects in our first quarter, eight different research methods, 12 global collaborations. And when I mean Uber-wide, we used operations, marketing teams, we leveraged everything. We had 16 product touch points and over 100 actionable insights. And with all of that, in the first quarter, we were able to show millions of dollars in revenue savings. Crazy, right? Now, not everyone can get an entire team to hire folks in different countries to do this, right? But the important part of this is to articulate the vision and encourage people to find a way to get behind that vision. My vision was to include the world. I wanted to find a way to be more inclusive. And at Uber, they had some opportunity to do that. But we'll talk about other examples that you can leverage to try to incorporate some other cultural understandings because culture is not just a global thing. We have our own cultures locally as well, right? And so, we can incorporate empathy, but we got to make sure we lead with perspective. We got to incorporate these contexts. We got to define these things. We have to ideate, oh, excuse me, I've never been able to pronounce this, but I ideate on these ideas, right? Build prototypes, test and retest and release them in the world instead of just defining them and releasing them from one location. How do we take into consider other, consideration other insights? I'll never forget how the jaws dropped when I did an Uber Eats study where everyone was an immigrant and folks were like, how? 
Nancy, how are we gonna even like work with these folks or translate? You don't even speak Spanish or other languages. And I said, who do you think is delivering your food? What was interesting in just showing them images, right? A lot of folks don't know our couriers, for example. They don't, uh, that we, we provide free education. We provide free education for couriers. But when we asked them if they understood this, the way it was written is the word said was tuition. No one could even pronounce the word tuition, right? But when I asked them, what does tuition mean? They said it meant free food. That was the overwhelming majority of people. Why did they say free food? Because there was an image of an apple next to the word tuition, which in America signifies education. Here's yet a small example of small design changes that we learned right away from testing on folks that were different from us and different from our cultures. And what we also learned is that this created access for more and more people. I'm gonna play a short video, but just know that there is no uh, sound to it. Uber decided to build accessibility software. A lot of folks do this. And so in this particular case, this is for deaf and hard of hearing drivers, right? We wanted to create opportunities for them to work. And so here you see them putting it up here and the screen will flash in order for them to know to pick up another driver. We saw this create job opportunities around the world. It was remarkable. But even more interesting is when we did some research on who was using this feature, we found out immigrants were using this feature because they recognized that they may have a language barrier or a cultural barrier that might make them uncomfortable speaking to somebody within the vehicle. Even more interesting, we found out regular people like you and me were using the feature because they didn't want to talk to nobody. They were turning on the feature just because they just didn't want to hear or want to talk to their passengers. So here's a driver opportunity that was supposed to be this great idea for just access and it created opportunity for everyone. Several other projects that I saw has been, that was created for access for these few created opportunity for many others. Projects like uh, Google Autocomplete that many of you guys use was an accessibility project first and Google Voice was an accessibility product first. This project on the left, it's called Clips. This was a project that we designed that was supposed to be able to be for everyone, men and women, you clip it onto yourself and you can take pictures in front of you handless. What we learned from this, when we tested this on just women, talk about inclusive, just women, is that hair got in the way, height was a situation. There's this little thing called breast that made things really hard to take images of, right? And so here we are creating products that we had no idea had limitations and we had to remarket the product until we could build it the way we wanted to with these inclusive voices. So this is an example of as a leader standing up and stopping a product from being released all over the world, such as watches that may not fit on certain wrists because they didn't consider women or limited color scales because we consider just, you know, because we're working mostly with men, just the colors that they might uh, choose versus this whole realm of colors that actually can create inclusiveness. We learned that by designing for underrepresented folks, by focusing on these underrepresented cultures, we created more access and versatility, not just to these individuals, but to ourselves. That radius of scale is incredible, I'm telling you. And so hopefully I can end and we have some time for some questions if we do, that you know, if you wanna scale, it's about forging connections, ideas, and opportunities that improve equity and inclusion overall in user experience. 
what we learned during all of this and all these roles that I've held is that you can deliver value beyond empathy. When you think about your own biases, that culture market fit and context actually helps you as well. We'll talk about the radius of scale a little later. Discovering patterns and trends was remarkable and helped us build more robust tools and products. We talked about scaling the radius of influence with research not only impacted others, but it impacted us as well. We leveraged our own privilege with awareness in order to build things that were more inclusive. And then we created opportunities through access by over-indexing on underrepresented individuals in order to build more equity. And so I'm just going to leave you for four tips that you guys can do right now in order to create better cultures for your design teams. For one, you can design platforms or a participation ladder that provides two underrepresented group checkpoints. You may not have the entire world, but you can at least take into consideration someone that is different from you. That might be make sure that your studies always have women. I know that sounds crazy, but that's not a guideline people have in their research or design practices, making sure that there are women always represented, right? So if you can consider at least two plus representative group checkpoints, that's one place to start. Testing your learnings, not only in your communities, but in marginalized communities. I can't tell you enough how much I fight in Silicon Valley to go someplace down the street like Oakland to do studies just because it's better and more diverse there. So if there's other places where you can meet other people, take your studies, take your designs out there and test them out. This is my favorite. Turn your assumptions into questions. This is just a life hack, guys. You know, I talked earlier about the example where folks were telling me what they wanted to send to Haiti. The folks who asked me what I needed when I was dealing with that Haitian earthquake, I was able to tell them that we needed to build wells. And in fact, my friends got together and we were able to build 200 wells across Haiti because of turning assumptions into questions. We were able to create clean water sources for multiple people. And isn't that better than just kind of thinking on your own about what to build? And lastly, hire retain and be accountable for diverse talent. It is so impeccable that we don't just think about this as a token thing. Hiring one woman doesn't mean, yay, we made it. We have an inclusive team. No, you've got to consider having that robust background. Me coming from Haiti alone created more access with the products that I built, but I work on majorly Asian and white teams, majorly male teams. So what does that mean? when we think about that. And so it's important that you go back and encourage your leaders to hire, retain, and be accountable for diverse talent. So that's what I got for you. If you wanna follow up, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram. Just find me, I'm pretty much the only Nancy Duyon in the world. That last name is spelled D-O-U-Y-O-N. It sounds different than it's stated, uh, but so just keep that in mind if you wanna follow up with me. And thank you so much for this opportunity. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Nancy. We have, uh, that, that was wonderful. We've got a, a few questions that have been sent through that I'll, I'll, I'll read out um, sure. and you can uh, take a crack at, at answering them for us while we have some time. So uh, Terry sent through a question. Uh, how do you design and maintain a global brand experience if every location has a customized user flow? Oh, wow, that's an interesting one. Um, so I typically work with companies that have a little bit of a, well, let me take that back now. Um, sometimes we've had to actually build out teams that are different in these places. So for example, with Uber, 
uh, we realized that what we were building in India needed more uniqueness, right? We, we were losing customers. We were seeing that our app was too heavy, for example, for folks' devices. So what that means is that we were learning that Uber, in some cases, was heavier than Facebook and Facebook Messenger combined, right? So we ended up having to build Uber Lite, which is basically the size of uh, three selfie images. And so that required us building a separate team to try to build that out because we, we saw that there was more opportunity. And so I think that in some cases when you're designing for scale, when it's the same design, it's important that you take into account these perspectives. But when you're working with different designs in different places, because the app does change, Uber's app, for example, changes in different locations, we actually have to work with localized teams to just kind of make sure those things work for them, right? It doesn't make too much sense for Americans to be building for Australians, right? If we can figure out a way, if there's, you know, great opportunity there to build out teams there. So what I found is that I work with vendors. So I literally look up UX vendors in different locations and all over the world and see if I can hire local folks to run through studies. Or what I'll do is I'll put a post in something local. I'll find out what the local Craigslist version, or I think you guys have a different version of it out there. Out uh, And, and, have folks uh, provide some insights. And lastly, surveys. Surveys are God when you have like different places. And so making sure that you create surveys and send them out, whether that's through Mechanical Turk. I don't know if you guys know about Amazon.com's Mechanical Turk, where you can ask questions to certain areas. There are some limitations. Sometimes when you set at certain times, different kinds of people show up, but there are ways that you can get different insights to make sure that you're informing your projects, especially if they're unique in different locations and locales. That's great. Um, Anna asked, could you clarify what a regional priority means? Okay. So for us, uh, what I noticed is that, you know, I said that we focused on places like India, Brazil, and Mexico. It, is, it was very difficult for me when I, when I start at these companies to make a case for like Australia or to make a case for Nigeria, right? Because we don't necessarily see the earning potential maybe yet. So for example, in Australia, I think it was in Adeline. I might be pronouncing it wrong. Sorry if I am. Adelaide. It, I guess the government out there required 16 documents per driver to sign up when we were working out there. Just a new law came out and 16 documents if you want to keep these drivers on the road. That is a real difficult thing to prioritize from the HQ right? Stop everything. We got to figure out how to make sure that this one city works. But it's a lot easier if you can make an argument for some places that have a scalable opportunity. India was showing a lot of potential. Brazil and, and Mexico represented a continent to an extent. And so it informed a lot of different places. So we wanted to prove our case first with these places and then we're able to show, hey, we just showed you the scale of influence. Now, when we're working with Australia, we probably should specifically work with that town in order to make sure that we are capturing some of these outliers so that it's a better experience for all Australians all abroad, across the country, right? Um, the continent, excuse me. And so um, that is how we saw regional priorities. It was just a great way for me to get the PMs and the engineering teams on my side to say, hey, I know HQ has their guidelines, their, their, their priorities, but look how much impact we could make if we started focusing on India, if we started using Brazil as an example for the entire content. 
continent. If we took a look at this one city and made it an opportunity to create scale across that entire continent. And so that's how we leverage regional priorities to become a global priority, if that makes sense. Yeah, nice. Uh, Patrick, and this will be uh, the last question, um, asks, have you had instances where products in development that were intended for users in multiple cultures presented too great a challenge to accommodate all needs in one product? And how have you gone about challenging stakeholders and clients on this? But I remember when I started early in my career, that was the, I would say, excuse that everybody gave me was that, well, Nancy, we can't design for the world. There's so many different peoples. There's a lot of folks who said, Nancy, I'm, I'm in California. My product is not about designing for the whole world. We just got to focus on where we are right now. My point is that you can still design more inclusively, even if it's not for the entire globe. There's nothing wrong with just incorporating other concepts in. So let's say you are building a product. I'm telling you with fact that if you take insights from an underrepresented group, you are actually creating more opportunity to get more clients that you did not think about, right? You actually limit yourself when you think that, well, this person or this group, or in this case, like Nigeria was a great example. They're like, ah, we can't help Nigeria. There's just so many differences that we can't incorporate. But the truth of the matter is uh, money, for example, those credit card issues I was talking about, those are the same issues that are happening in West Africa and East Africa. In fact, to be honest, we can test some of those things in America where cash can be brought back. How do you think taxis have been operating for so long, right? And so it, it's really important that you understand that it's not, I'm not suggesting that you build for everybody on the planet per se. What I'm suggesting is that you take into account other voices, other underrepresented voices, other access points in order to create more opportunity and versatility. And you will find when you incorporate just a few more voices, when you incorporate just women, for example, that we saw at Google, when we just incorporated the idea of just studying women, our products changed dramatically. I'm not kidding. I am not kidding, right? And so how can you make it with your product to incorporate some of these underrepresented groups and make it something that's systematic while taking into account, of course, that maybe your product isn't for everyone in the world, but you can still get in a voice or two from someone that's a little different from you. I know in Australia, when I was there just last year towards the end of the year, I was, it was amazing to hear how much they took into account the voices of folks in New Zealand, right? And so can you incorporate that in your studies? Can you incorporate a different culture? Can you incorporate a different community? Can you say something like, well, we're in the city. Let's see how this works in the suburbs, right? It's that, is, that's what I mean when I say underrepresented, you know? But if you have the ability to create for global scale, I'm telling you there's amazing things that happen there too. But sometimes you got to start small. That's wonderful. Thank you very much, Nancy. Please join me in thanking Nancy for that talk. Thank you.